Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 5, Genesis chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter in our message today. We want everybody to be able to follow along. So these guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need one, get their attention. And that's marked at Genesis 5 for you. A baby is born and family and friends coo over her. Seeing in this infant child God's goodness and creativity. And they're thinking about all of the endless possibilities for what this little one can become. Then the child approaches school age. Whether in our very own most excellent preschool. Or for kindergarten. And the pictures are taken And the mixed emotions flow due to, on the one hand, losing her from being home all the time to thinking about the new friends and new possibilities. She goes to school K through 12, and you guide her through the same teenage drama that you experienced. And you look forward to her graduation, another milestone, another celebration, and another hope-filled future. And then college or career follows. She settles into a job, perhaps perhaps gets married and has children, and takes a similar path to the one that you traveled and that brought you into the world and her as well. Meanwhile, you're nearing the golden years, and she's planning and preparing and looking forward to them. Especially, you are looking forward to those because you're going through what's often called a midlife crisis. The recognition that most of those dreams at graduation were just, were just that. Your child, while you're at retirement age, is starting to recognize that she's at least halfway through her life and there's no reasonable chance that those goals are going to be achieved. And for you, retirement starts out great. But you need to find something to do as man does not live by golf alone. And your wife has told you after the first six months, listen, honey, I married you for better or for worse, but not for lunch. You've got to find something to do. Many of your friends at that point have moved away. Some are having physical problems. And you read an article that says the average person dies within 10 years after retirement. In the words of the recently deceased Baseball Hall of Famer, Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over, but for all intents and purposes, for you, it's over. And your child is heading in the same direction. And you wonder to yourself, is this all there is for me? Is this all there is for the next generation? And here's what the Bible says In Genesis 5, beginning in verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And he became the father, after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years. 
And then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he had become became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. After he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said... He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, in answer to the question, is this all there is? The Bible's answer is a resounding yes. This is all there is. Sin brings death. And now with the entrance of sin into the human race, all die. And therefore, you find the refrain given eight times in the passage we just read. And then he died. When Ponce de Leon landed in St. Augustine, Florida in the year 1513... It's said that he was searching for the fountain of youth, a spring that supposedly would restore the youth of anyone who drank or bathed in its waters. But the search for the fountain of youth did not begin with De Leon. In fact, it has been spoken of for nearly 2,000 years before and over the centuries in many parts of the world. This common desire for the fountain of youth or some way to prolong life is because indeed This is all there is. And secondly, we can't live with that. And so we find ourselves still searching for something more, and we need more time to find it. Now, the chapter I just read is one that many people have gotten halfway through. In fact, maybe you got halfway through it as I was was reading it. And that's where their quest to read the Bible, starting at the beginning, ended. 
You made a resolution to read through the Bible. You open to the front. You read about creation and the fall and the first murder in the opening chapters. And it's all pretty interesting until you get to chapter 5. And if you're reading in a King James Version, you read over and over again, so-and-so begat so-and-so and lived for X number of years, and then he died. And though you hate to admit it, it bored you to death. No pun intended. And so you closed your Bible, and you wondered to yourself, why did God include that? Well, as with everything in the Bible, there's good reason that it's there. Remember that in chapter 4, humanity began to develop civilization and culture. But they did so apart from God. Chapter 4 and verse 17 says that Cain built a city and he named it after his son. Really a monument to his, Cain's, achievement. And it tells us that Cain's descendants accomplished great things. Verse eight, verse 19 of chapter 4 through verse 22 says that they were herdsmen and musicians and industrialists. So despite the entrance of sin into the world and God's warning that when you disobey me, you will die. It appears in chapter four that humanity is doing really okay apart from God. And with each accomplishment, I can hear them saying. We rule. We've got this. And God adds this chapter to remind of what I say in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you haven't taken that out yet, I encourage you to do that. God reminds you don't rule. Rather, I say first in your outline, death rules. Death rules. In fact, God included chapter 5 of Genesis in part to teach us that death reigns in spite of human achievement. The truth is man can achieve and create and enjoy but only for a limited time. And there is one feat that man will never accomplish, and that is reversing the curse. You will die unless God intervenes. Now, the Bible in this passage and elsewhere tells us that death reigned from the time of Adam on. But you have to be struck not only with the and then he died refrain, but also with how very long they actually lived. As I'm reading through that, we've got 930 years, 912, 905, 910, and on it goes. So why did they live so long? And humanity, going back for thousands of years, has had only approximately 70 years, as the Bible says in Psalm 90. Well, briefly, scientists say it has to do with three things. Genetic limit, genetic bottleneck, and genetic drift. Dr. Carl Weiland says this, There is a programmed upper limit on our age, which appears to be 120 years or so. Absolute max that a human being could possibly live. And you hear these stories of folks who live over 100 every now and then, somebody to 100 and the teens. He says there is this programmed upper limit on our age, which appears to be 120 years or so. Our ancestors simply possessed genes for greater longevity, which caused this genetic limit to human ages to be set at a higher level in the past. But how were some of these longevity genes lost? Well, the human population went through a severe genetic bottleneck at the time of the flood, which we'll be considering in weeks to come. A bottleneck of only eight individuals. 
The phenomenon of genetic drift is well known to be able to account for random, selectively neutral changes in gene frequencies, including the loss or extinction of genes from a population, which may be quite rapid. Also, loss of genes is far more likely in a small population. So why did they live longer than we did? It's because they had genes that allowed for that longevity. And scientifically, because of that bottleneck with eight persons after the flood, that longevity gene did not survive. And so as a result, we live our three score and 10, 70 years on average across the world. Death rules. And I say in your outline, it rules, first of all, the living. Death rules the living. Now, remember, death in the Bible means separation. And there are three kinds of death in the Bible, physical, spiritual, and eternal. Those who are spiritually separated from God are therefore spiritually dead. Until, unless and until, they are born again. They are dead while they physically live. From a biblical standpoint, a person is physically alive and breathing, and their heart is beating But they are dead, dead men and women walking because spiritually separated from God in the throes of spiritual death. And that's why the Bible says things like this about those who are outside of Christ. The message of the cross is foolishness. Now, notice this to those who are perishing. These are people who are alive, but they're perishing. We live, humanity lives with a death sentence over us. All of us are, in effect, on death row. And that's why in that aforementioned psalm, Psalm number 90, where Moses wrote of the fact that if we are fortunate, we will have our three score and ten, our 70, our 70 years on, on average. But in that very same psalm, he says this, You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. And while on earth for a relatively brief time, brief compared certainly to eternity, then we live life, go through life physically, spiritually dead, separated from from God, dead men and women walking, as it were, and we go through all of our routine consigned to the hamster wheel of a living death. Now, do you know what I mean when I say the hamster wheel? Just going around and around, doing the same thing, doing the same thing. Psalm 90 was written by Moses, and Moses knew something about that hamster wheel of a living death. He had seen death over the 40-year wandering in the wilderness. He had seen 1.2 million people die in those 40 years. You remember that 1.2 million people left Egypt. The Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 1 and verse 45, Numbers chapter 1 and verse 45, that precisely 603, 550 adult men left Egypt. And those men undoubtedly had wives, and that's why we say 1.2 million adults. And remember, they disobeyed God. They would not early on go in and take the promised land. And he said, as a result of that, you will be consigned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and none of you will see the promise, the promised land, save Joshua and Caleb. 
1.2 million died during those 40 years. Moses, who wrote then Psalm number 90, had become somewhat of an expert on death, and he saw the hamster wheel of a living death. Every day they got up for the same routine. They got up, dismantled camp, gathered food, wandered in the wilderness, and then in the evening they set up camp again, and then in the morning they did the same thing. And then they died. Death rules. Death rules the living. Death rules the living, and I say in your outline as well, it rules, of course, the dead. Death rules the dead. That is, even in physical death, there is this continuing separation from God for humanity in his natural, in its natural state. The Bible refers to this then as that third kind of death. There's physical death and spiritual death, and then there is eternal death. That is separation from God forever. So death rules the dead. The Bible speaks of it in places like 2 Thessalonians 1. God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. So what is the solution to this then? Is there any hope to this hopelessness that you find because of the entrance of sin And the sentence of death that abides on everyone and that we read about in Genesis chapter 5, then what is the solution to that? Well, thanks be to God, God has promised such a solution for those who will receive it. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God gave Ezekiel a vision of the rebuilding and gathering of his nation, the nation of Israel. A nation that was, in this vision that he gave to Ezekiel, seen as a valley of dead and dry bones. It's also an illustration of how the power of God, through the Spirit of God, can breathe life into a spiritually dead soul. And here's what Ezekiel says. I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. The Lord asked me, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Let's just stop right there. (laughs) That's the task of preaching the gospel. Did you know that? You're preaching the gospel to people who in their natural state are spiritually dead. And God says, prophesy. God says, preach. And I, God, am pleased to use my word. By my spirit to affect life in those that I have chosen. And so Ezekiel goes on to say, so I have prophesied, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. Breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet. A vast army. Thanks be to God. So death rules. But death can be overruled by the grace of God giving life to the spiritually dead. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in that famous encounter in John chapter 3 in your Bible, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Spiritual life must be given to the spiritually dead. That's why we sing a song here that has a verse that says, I was blinded by my sin. I had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. But then your spirit gave me life 
and opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son gave me endless hope and peace. Naturally, humanity in its natural state, death rules. But I say secondly in your outline, grace breaks the rule. Death rules, but grace is what breaks the rule. Now remember that grace is unearned favor from God. God could rightly leave all of us to the consequences of our sin, but instead he intervenes in his grace. I've got three ways for you in your outline that grace breaks the rule of death. And we actually see it in this passage in Genesis chapter 5. The first is this. It breaks the rule with purpose. With purpose. Now, where do we see that in Genesis 5? The very first verse. Notice. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. At the very beginning of this passage, it's going to have this eight refrains of, and then he died, and focus on the fact that the curse is still in place, even though mankind is accomplishing marvelous things in civilization and in culture. At the very beginning of this, God reminds us that not only is the curse in effect, but the offer of the blessing of his creation is in effect as well. You see, Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. But then it tells us that, as we read earlier, beginning in verse 3, that Adam had a son, Seth, who was made in his, Adam's likeness. So Adam was made in the image of God, and the image of God continues through Adam's progeny. The image of God is still there. And therefore, the offer of achieving the purpose for which we were given that image, and the way that reflection of God back to God was to take place, is still in effect. We remain in the image of God even after the entrance of sin in the world. Did you know that? And so the image of God has not been obliterated. It has been marred. The mirrors that we were made to be reflecting God back to God are now cracked. They're now distorted. But they're not gone. And that's why in Genesis chapter 9, it says this. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Here's why. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Now this is four chapters from where we are now in chapter 9. And still the image of God is said to exist in man. And that's why God takes the taking of human life so seriously. Back in chapter 2 and verse 15, in God's creation of the first man and the first woman, he gave them instructions about what they were to do in the garden. And that purpose given in chapter 2 is to reflect God as they serve and obey God. And we saw at the time we went through that, that that taken together means that they were made to worship God. They were made to worship God with the purpose of worshiping God and thus reflecting the character of God back to God because he has stamped his image on them. That image is marred, but it is not obliterated. And thanks be to God, he is still in the process of restoring that image. Now, what is that image? It is the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to Hebrews chapter 1, is this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And that is why in the 
restoration project that is salvation. When God rescues, God delivers us from the clutches of sin and all of its ultimate consequences. When God does that, he's restoring us to the image of Jesus. Jesus exactly represents God. That's what Adam was made to do. That's what we were designed to do, but we don't do it now. And God is repairing those broken mirrors. And that's why Romans 8 says this, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, you were taught to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And that restoration project of some within humanity who are broken mirrors now that God is repairing in salvation, molding us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, that will be complete one day when we are glorified. And the Bible says in 1 John 3, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In the meantime, then, for those of us who have come to God through Jesus Christ and a relationship has been reestablished for us to pursue the original purpose for which he made us, the Bible tells us that we are to worship him with these bodies that he has given us. Romans 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And when you come to the end of human history, you find a vision given to the Apostle John in the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. And in chapter 5 there, he has this marvelous vision of worship in the eternal state. And he says in Revelation 5, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Do you see what's happening here? What we were made to do in Genesis chapter 2 is actually happening now at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 5. We were made to worship him and there countless people that God has restored are doing that very thing. God gives this abundant, common grace to everybody because all are made in His image. And all are made with a God consciousness. And all are bid by God, come to me for the restoration that you required. And God's abundant common grace is seen in the fact, now hear this, that we are surprised when bad things happen to us. Friends, you know how gracious God has been to humanity when sinful humanity that deserves death and eternal death is surprised when bad things happen. Now, if you think about sin, you think about the consequences of sin, God's reminding us in Genesis chapter 5 of those most serious consequences, and then he died, and then he died, on and on. And if you think about that, we should not be surprised when bad things happen. In fact, we should be surprised that good stuff happens. And it's a testimony to the grace of God. Commonly given to all of his creatures that we're surprised by bad things. Grace, his special grace, is an exception to the rule. 
God's common grace is, by definition, not exceptional. Everyone experiences that. But then there's God's special grace in salvation, and that is an exception to the rule. Friends, when you experience difficulty, as many of you are right now, in whatever ways, your first question should not be, why me? If you really understand, if we really understand sin and its consequences, we should ask ourselves, why isn't it me all the time? If God gave us what was just rather than what was gracious and merciful, it would be us all the time. So God breaks the rule of death with purpose, a remaining purpose from the very beginning. And secondly, he breaks the rule with fellowship. Grace breaks the rule with fellowship. Because of God's grace, despite the sin that separates us from God, a relationship with God can be had and enjoyed. And this passage in Genesis 5 gives us that ray of light in the person of Enoch. Look at verse 22 again. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. This is a reminder that the world will pursue its achievements, as we saw in the line of Cain in chapter 4. The world will pursue its achievements, but God will bless, God will bless his chosen people. And in this chapter of Genesis chapter 5, the line is now going to go through this other son who was appointed to replace Abel, we're told at the beginning of chapter 4, this son Seth. And in chapter 5, we're given the lineage from Seth to Noah, and then later from Noah to Abraham, and then still later from Abraham to Jesus. And so I want to compare just very briefly with you these, these two lines that are given in chapter 4 and chapter 5. In chapter 4, in verse 1, you start with Adam. And the Bible tells us in verse 1 of chapter 4 that he has a son, Cain. And then if you skip down to verse 17 of chapter 4, we're told that Cain has a son. He names him Enoch, not the Enoch that we read about in chapter 5. And in fact, he names the city that he built after his son Enoch. And then in verse 18, we're told of these other generations, Arad and Mahujael and Methusael and Lamech. Now notice that Lamech is the seventh generation in chapter 4. And Lamech is a really bad guy. In fact, beginning in verse 22, he talks about his, his polygamy And he talks about having murdered someone. Lamech is the seventh generation, a really bad guy, and the record of the line of Cain ends there. And then God, to tell us, yes, that the curse continues, but also my grace continues in giving you purpose and the possibility of fellowship with me, he gives us chapter 5. And in chapter 5, it doesn't end with seven generations, it goes... For a full ten generations. From Adam to Seth to Enosh to Kenan to Mahalalel to Jared to Enoch to Methuselah to Lamech and then to Noah. 
Now, the seventh in chapter 5, remember the seventh was, was Lamech, a different Lamech than in chapter 5, a really bad guy, a polygamist and a murderer. The seventh in chapter 5 is Enoch, the one we read of in verses 22 to 24. And he's a really good guy. So you have this contrast between the line of Cain that ends and the line of Seth that is blessed and continues. And the seventh in the line of Seth is this one we read of called Enoch. Now, why repeat the names? Just quickly. You know, Cain has a son. He calls him Enoch. And then later in the line of Seth, you've got this Enoch that we're talking about. And you also have Lamech, a different Lamech in both of those. Well, because it's not uncommon for multiple people to have the same names at the same time, right? And the truth is we have at least five Kens in our congregation, which means I get blamed for stuff that they do. And they get blamed for stuff that I do. Now, here's what the Bible tells us in chapter 5 about the seventh generation through Seth from Adam, Enoch. It tells us he walked with God. And the word walked there is the same word that's used for God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve in chapter 3 and verse 8. God walked with humanity before the entrance of sin. That was his common, that was his common practice. And man enjoyed regular interaction with God before sin. And this phrase, walking with God, is used only one other time in your Old Testament. And that's in Malachi chapter 2, where it says that the priest Levi walked with me, walked with God in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. One commentator says this, it's not speaking of the piety of the godly Israelites generally, but of the conduct of the priests who stood in a closer relation to God under the Old Testament than the rest of the faithful being permitted to enter the holy place and hold direct interaction with God there, which the rest of the people could not do. And so when it says in chapter 5 and verse 22 and 24 that Enoch walked with God, it means he enjoyed an intimacy, a fellowship with God that was not common among sinful people. And then in verse 24, when it says he was no more because God took him away, it's saying that Enoch, unlike everyone else, did not die, but rather was taken directly to God. Eight times you have the refrain, and then he died. And then in the midst of this, you have this one guy who was just no more. And he was taken away. And that word for taken is the same word used of another, a second and only other person in the Old Testament who did not experience death, that of the prophet Elijah. It's the same word used. The Bible says the Lord is going to take, same word used of Enoch, take Elijah from you today. And we're told very directly in the New Testament that this means that Enoch did not die. In Hebrews chapter 11, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. And Enoch's relationship with God, this fellowship with God that he enjoyed, was such that God communicated his word to Enoch as one of his prophets. And Enoch gave the word of God to the people. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. So walking with God, friends, is more than just 
he pleased God and obeyed God. While it's not less than obedience, it's more than mere outward conformity. It's a desire to love God in the presence of God, before the face of God. One commentator says it well. Let me read what he says about this walking with God, this fellowship with God that Enoch had. Enoch walked with God because he was his friend and he liked his company. Because he was going in the same direction as God and he had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. We walk with God when he is in all our thoughts, not because we consciously think of him at all times, but because he's naturally suggested to us by all that we do think of. As when any person or plan or idea has become more become important to us, no matter what we think of, our thought is always found recurring to this favorite object. So with the godly man, everything has connection with God and must be ruled by that connection. When some change in his circumstances thought of, he has first of all to determine how this proposed change will affect his connection with God. Will his conscience be equally clear? Will he be able to live on the same friendly terms with God? When he falls into sin and he cannot, when he falls into sin, he cannot rest until he has resumed his place at God's side and walks again with him. This is the general nature of walking with God. It's a persistent endeavor to hold all our life open to God's inspection and in conformity to his will. A readiness to give up what we find does, causes any distance between us and God. A feeling of loneliness if we have not some satisfaction in our efforts at holding fellowship with God. A cold and desolate feeling when we're conscious of doing something that displeases God. This walking with God necessarily tells on the whole life and character. As you instinctively avoid subjects which you know will harm the feelings of your friend. As you naturally endeavor to suit yourself to the company you are in. So when the consciousness of God's presence begins to have some weight with you, you are found instinctively endeavoring to please him, repressing the thoughts you know he disapproves and endeavoring to educate such dispositions as reflect his own nature. He goes on. It is easy then to understand how we may practically walk with God. It is to open to him all our purposes and hopes. To seek his judgment on our plan of life and idea of happiness. It is to be on thoroughly friendly terms with God. Things were not made easy to Enoch. In evil days, with much to mislead him, with everything to oppose him, he had by faith and diligent seeking, as the epistle to the Hebrews says, to cleave to the path on which God walked, often left in darkness, often thrown off the track, often listening but unable to hear the footfall of God or hear his own name called upon, but still diligently seeking the God he knew would lead him only to good. That's what it means to walk with God. Grace breaks the rule of sin and death. And it breaks the rule of sin and death by giving us purpose, by giving us fellowship. And then lastly, in your outline, it breaks the rule with hope. It breaks the rule with hope. And where do we find that in chapter 5? Verse 28. When Lamech lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said... 
He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So these guys are living under the curse, as was Adam and Eve, the moment that they sinned against God, and then all of their descendants. They're living under the curse and the painful toil that God said you will till the ground with. It will now bring forth thistles and it will be hard for you. And Lamech says, perhaps this son, this one that I'm naming Noah, will give us relief from this. Now, what does Noah have to do with this relief? It's this. The name Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for comfort. And that's why Lamech says this. He will comfort us in our labor, labor and painful toil. Now, God did bring this salvation, this rescue, this deliverance ultimately through Noah, but certainly not in the way that Lamech anticipated. And so just as God's original purpose stands, so too the effects of the curse still stand at the time that Lamech says this. And they're laboring under that curse. And they lived all of those years. And you might have been thinking, well, you know, it would be cool to live that long. No, it just means you're living longer under the curse. They lived longer under the curse. But even Lamech understood that there can be hope. Hope from God. In giving this one named Comfort, Noah, and ultimately pointing to the one who would be the solution to the problem of sin and death. Because that is true, that is why the Bible says, in places like 1 Thessalonians 4, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have No hope. In the Bible, the word hope is a confident expectation based upon the promises of God. In the midst of a fallen world, in the midst of the curse, in the midst of all of the difficulty, in the midst of all of the death, in the midst of all of that, God's people like Enoch are called out and are pointed to him, are pointed to the God who made them and still holds out this purpose and this fellowship and this hope. And so in your New Testament, we read the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age while we wait. Notice, friends, for the blessed hope. And what is that blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Human beings, it has been said, can live for 40 days without food. They can live for four days without water. Four minutes without air. But we cannot live for four seconds without hope. Jesus gives that hope. Jesus is the fulfillment of the line of Seth through Noah, through Abraham. He gives that hope. And when he walked the earth, he said, rather than being the living dead... You can be alive spiritually and you can be alive to the full. He said this in John 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And he stood outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus explained what was happening when he raised Lazarus by saying this. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That's our hope. That's your hope. And let me say to you, dear Christian, for the Christian, there is always a better future. If you don't know Christ, 
you have no guarantee of a better future. The songwriters can sing, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Little Annie in the theatrical presentation can say, the sun will come out tomorrow. You bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. It'll all be better tomorrow. You have no guarantee of that. As a matter of fact, outside of Christ, you have the guarantee that ultimately your future, your tomorrow will be outside the presence of God. It is only for the one who has a relationship with God that God still offers despite the curse that you can say with confidence, tomorrow is better. The future is always better for the Christian. So what is your take-home truth? It's God's grace that overrules sin and death. God's grace overrules. Death rules. God's grace overrules sin and death. We're going to pray. And I invite your Christian friend to thank God for his grace in our lives, living in a fallen world, but giving us the light of the gospel, giving us life so that we can have it to the full. And for those of you that came into this room without a relationship with God, Then as you read that refrain throughout Genesis chapter 5, that applies to you. This is all there is. But God says there can be more, and I offer it to you. And here's how. Recognize that you are a sinner. You realize you're a sinner, but recognize that the solution to your sin is God the Son, Jesus Christ, who died to pay the penalty for your sin. Repent of your sin. Lord, I want to walk with you as Enoch walked with you. I want to go your way, not my way. And when we bow our heads in just a moment, then you pray to God from your heart in your own words, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe that you came to do for me what I could not do for myself. I ask you to forgive me and I give my life to you. Change me, Lord, for your glory. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for your word in its entirety. Every piece of it instructs us. It is all one story. That proceeds from the very beginning with your purpose for your creation. With all of the consequences of our rebellion from you. And even the genealogies have a great purpose for us. To show us these glimpses of your grace in the midst of sin and of death. We thank you our God that you still overrule sin and death. We thank you that in Jesus Christ the last enemy has been defeated. The enemy of death. We thank you, therefore, that those who know him can live in the here and now with absolute confidence that they know where their future lies and that the future is always better for the Christian. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move on the hearts of some right now. In this sacred moment, I pray that you would draw some to yourself and out of the world, overcoming their natural disposition to think foolish the things of God, to scoff at the good news of the gospel as if they don't need it, Oh, Lord, I pray that you would move some from the category of those that are perishing to those who are being saved. And we will give you the praise and the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.